I've talked to a few people when it comes to that song, Reckless Love, and they have a hard time with that word, reckless. Um, in fact, they uh, don't sing the song. And uh, I looked it up, and reckless actually is one of the English words that we have where it has a double meaning. For example, apology is very common sense. We apologize for something we do wrong. But also apology means to defend something. So like, for example, Christian apologist or a Christian apology would be defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reckless, we know what that means from just common sense, but also means this, audacious, bold, intrepid. So as you sing that song, it's an audacious love. It's a reckless love. All right, there's your uh, grammar lesson for this morning. <laughs> Last week we uh, talked about, <clears throat> sorry I have a, I have a uh, cold in my throat, so I'm going to be uh, sucking on cough drops here, but last week we talked about how the church changed the world by breaking down barriers, important barriers, barriers such as uh, social class or race and gender, and if you missed last week I encourage you uh, to watch our video cast, and for those who are watching uh, right now, um, maybe they're up at the cabin or maybe they're away for Father's Day, we want to welcome you this morning as well. And also we're going to look at another way that the church changed the world. And it's a very subtle, it's a very subtle overlooked uh, aspect. And I think sometimes we go through the book of Acts, and we have only this morning and then next Sunday, and we're done with the book of Acts, and then we'll take the week off on June 30th, and then I'm going to launch a brand new series, a deep dive into uh, Romans 12, one of the best chapters of the Bible. And I'm really excited about that, and we'll spend the rest of the summer in uh, Romans 12. But uh, what I want you to do as we think about one of the ways that the church changed the world was actually through their hospitality. Um, we, we miss that. As we read through it, we just think it's commonplace. And we don't, it doesn't jump out to us. But it's very important to Luke when he writes in his gospel and also in Acts. They're meant to be actually read together. Luke and Acts. He wrote both of those. The theme of hospitality, of meals, inviting people over to your home is hit over and over and over again. So we're actually going to look at that. That's one of the ways that the church changed the world, in addition to what I mentioned about last week, is their hospitality. Because for them, back then, everyone was welcome. Their doormat was out there, and they actually meant it. I mean, it wasn't simply a doormat. It was something like, yes, every single person is welcome. Again, whatever, whatever social class, whatever race, whatever gender, also for those who had health conditions like leprosy, the early church took them in and would care for them. When no other segment of the Greco-Roman world would take them in, the church did. And as a result, what happened over the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, as they began to build these uh, structures to care for those who were like, that had leprosy and other diseases that no one else take care of. Also orphans, for example. And pretty soon, the hospital movement began. It came out of the roots of the early church around this thing called hospitality. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We looked last week at Acts chapter 2, and I know we covered this before as well, but Acts chapter 2 and 4 are very vivid portraits of Luke painting a picture of what the church can be. And for us, I think this, is, you know, this should be in, like for our, our goal as we read this, this is, when things are going, going well, this is how the church can be. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Let me pray for us this morning. God in heaven, thank you so much. You are a good, good father. And we thank you for all that you have provided for us. And I pray for 
Uh, men in our congregation, perhaps they have bad memories of a father, or maybe they, their father has passed away, or maybe for some guys, they, they're wanting to be a father. And my heart goes out to them, and I pray for their, them for you to bless them today as well. And Lord, we give this sermon to you. And Lord, I, I can't preach this without you. I need your anointing. I need you to speak through me. So Holy Spirit, take these words and transform them. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. So right away, sort of the posture of the early church was others first. Not self, others. It's actually remarkable. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land land or houses, <clears throat> would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So we see right here, and also in Acts chapter 2, what also we see, not only is the sharing of possessions, but in Acts chapter 2, they were meeting in homes. They were sharing in meals together, providing for all, especially when it says providing for those who are in need. Some people need food. They were hungry, and people opened up their homes to them. And that is one of the ways they changed the world. Let's move on to Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. This is a wonderful story about um, a church leader named Lydia. And we're going to read about her conversion and then what she does. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank. This is Luke talking. Where we, we thought people would be willing for... willing. Excuse me, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Titria, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. In other words, she was very affluent, who worshiped God. In other words, she believed in God. She um, had faith in God, but that isn't enough. That's called theism. Just knowing about God or having a belief in God isn't enough. As she listened to us, we can assume right there that Paul is sharing the gospel that it's faith through Jesus Christ, through the grace and mercy found in Christ, that he died on the cross for us. Uh, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying, and she and her household were baptized. And she asked us to be her guests. Now, she doesn't even know these people. And she says, welcome. Come over to my house. I just love that. Right, right after she's baptized, it, she says this, if you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So I want you to circle that word urge because actually it's like this really strong, emphatic, continuous asking of these people to come over to her place. I wonder if you and I would do that. Would we actually keep asking somebody to come over to our home? Because she's inviting people over. In fact, in one translation, she urged us until we agreed. How far are we willing to invite people to our home? And here, Lydia demonstrates the definition of hospitality. I want you to write this down. Hospitality means this in the literal Greek. It means a love for the stranger. It's a, when we meet by stranger, not like, like just a random stranger. Sometimes it can be that. But also people maybe that you don't know as well. For example, in our church. I'm sure there's people here that you don't know yet. That would, that would apply to that as well. People that you see, but you really don't know. And that's the, the, the meaning of hospitality. And as we dive into this, and I'm going to challenge you to really engage in this hospitality. 
Because I think for our church, if we were to do this on a regular basis for people in this church, and when, I know we have our circles, we have our group of friends and family and such, but if you were to look around on Sundays where your radar is always looking for people who are new to this church or newer or you just don't know them, and you were to invite them over to your home for a meal, what would happen in this church? I think transformation. I think the Spirit of God would be so profound. And I think God would do amazing things here, as he is already. But I think there's op- obstacles for us. There's obstacles, of course, for us to invite people to our house. There's time. There's only too much, so much time that we have each week. You might be a new parent, or you might be a soccer, basketball, a lacrosse, uh, baseball parent. It's understandable. You're in a season of life right now. But don't allow sports to dictate the life of your family. And I'm speaking firsthand. I learned that lesson. My son was in traveling basketball in fourth grade. And then as he played traveling basketball, he was also in baseball. My daughter went traveling basketball as well. Pretty soon for us, our world revolved around the sports. It was like our subculture. And pretty soon I was concerned that sports was actually becoming an idol for us. And I'm not trying to guilt you if that's where you're at right now because sports is great and perhaps your son or daughter is a terrific athlete. Go for it. And, but perhaps you have that season where you're busy, where you have four games this week, right? Four nights, you're going to be gone. And you're listening to me like, yeah, right. You're telling me to invite people over to our house? We're barely home ourselves. But uh, maybe you're busy for a season. And that there's an opening, perhaps like in August, for example. Or here or there, wherever that is. And I want to encourage you, like Lydia, to invite some people over to your house for a meal Another obstacle can be fatigue. Maybe you're working 60, 70 hours a week. You get to Friday night, you're ready to drop. You just want to binge on Netflix and eat a lot of buttered popcorn. That's me. Sorry. No. Uh, or, or you're watching the kiddos and you're managing the household. And it's like if you have to change another diaper or if you have to clean up another mess or if you have to ch- chase another child with no clothes in the backyard, you're going to lose it. And, and maybe you get to the end of the week, it's, you have nothing left. But you know what? There's something amazing that when you push yourself to actually invite people over to your home, that energizes you. How many of us have, have, have experienced that? I have. You, get, you work a week and then you have some people coming over for dinner. You've got to make the, the food. And it's like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't think I have anything left. And yet something happens. Something special happens in that time together. You know why? Because it says in Matthew, where two or three or more gathered, Jesus Christ is there as well. Jesus is right there. So maybe the next time you have a meal is have an open chair and just, Jesus is right there. He's sitting right there. Because he's among us. He's in our midst. And I think that's part of that when we're energized, it also gives us joy too. Or maybe the obstacle is Discomfort. Perhaps inviting people over makes you uncomfortable. You feel like your house is not nice enough. It's not clean enough. It seems like it's, it's in a, a continuous, perpetual mess. And there's like no way that you could, you could have people over. Or maybe you just want your home to be your castle. You want your home to be the, the castle and where you want this to be this. <laughs> and you don't want anybody to come over. You, you work with people. And you just want to be by yourself. And, and, and just to... Just to not be disturbed. Yet, if we live that way, and what happens is where your world and my world becomes the world. 
it becomes this small, the small little bubble. And you think, as you live in that way, that this is the way to live, the way to live. But when you open it up and invite people in, people from perhaps other cultures, people from uh, other whatever background, it's, it's amazing what happens. I was at a wedding last night. I only knew the groom and bride I officiated. And I was at a table, and I just struck up a conversation with a couple of the uncles and just the remarkable story about their family. And it was so much fun learning about them. And, and my, my, I just feel my, my, my world just enlarged because I was learning things about their family and about Northeast Minneapolis back in the day. And uh, their, their parents coming over from Sweden and a variety of things. It's absolutely remarkable. So sometimes we can, we can kind of close down and think this is the way of life. But it's a bubble of existence. So let's move into it. The why. That may sound nice and good, but really, why should we practice hospitality? Why should we? As we see in Acts 2 and 4 and 16, it was actually an integral part of the church. It was not ancillary. It was not like an optional thing. It was weaved in to the rhythm of the church. They met in homes and the temple. In other words, they would have worship gatherings corporately, but also they would have times in their homes. In, in fact, the church in Philippi that we read about, of Lydia, that church actually became well-known for the number of homes that pe- believers were meeting in. Some scholars believe that actually there, there was house churches. And there, there were a number of believers meeting together in homes, but also they did meet corporately as well. But for us to understand that this actually grew into a deep-seated ethic. And we think about our ethics. But for them, hospitality was very important. It was very important as part of the, the Jesus movement that it was about the gospel, so doctrine, and it was also about um, community, it was about, and also about hospitality. So it wasn't just about having the right doctrine. Hospitality was right there as the church grew and it changed the world. And the thought of back then, if you didn't invite somebody in, if your doormat was sort of like a metaphor for the way you lived, they would actually look at it not simply as, boy, you're impolite or you're rude. They actually looked at it as inhumane. Like, you are a moral person. Seriously, look it up. It was a big deal. And I want, I want us to recapture, just a, if we could recapture just a fraction of that here at Maple Grove Covenant, I think, again, God would do amazing things. And I've experienced uh, hospitality in profound ways. And what really opened my eyes to hospitality was my first mission trip to the Dominican Republic. I was down there, and I was on staff at another church, and we went down there, and we were developing a relationship with a, a church in Santo Domingo. And one of the leaders of the church invited us over. We had a group of 20. And the leader uh, brought us over to his house right just on the outside of Santo Domingo. It was a very small house. And I'm thinking, how in the world are 20 people going to fit in here? And he wanted to provide a brunch for us. And somehow we all squeezed in that kitchen. It's like eating like this. And then also other rooms they had, tables and everything. And you would, as we looked at the... the um, uh, the utensils and the plates and the cups, they brought out everything they had, the best of what they had. 
And some plates were really nice, and then you had other ones so-so, it didn't really matter. Cups didn't match, but they didn't care. They were so happy to have us over. And it's like they said to us, our home is your home. And it was just remarkable. And their joy. And not worrying about the plates or the house, but just the fact of having community, having people over and providing hospitality. It blew me out of the water. It, it really impacted my worldview towards hospitality. I was like, I need to be like that. I need to be comfortable having people over and to the point where like, there's no seating available. It was absolutely remarkable being part of that. And also, that Dominican church, it's an integral part of how they live as well. Yet the, the rhythm of hospitality that we see in the early church in Acts 4, Acts 16, is actually was taught and patterned by Jesus. That's how the disciples brought that over into the early church, is that Jesus actually gave the example of that. If you just do a cursory glance of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just zip through it, you'll see Jesus having meals a lot, having conversations, which then he would leverage towards a parable or maybe um, a lesson of some kind. But he's having meals, he's having refreshments, he's at, at these people's houses, and almost, to all the way to the point where he is accused, Luke 7, of being a glutton and a drunkard. That's how much time he's spending around with people around meals. Because there's something that happens, a dynamic that happens. And he led in that way. And Jesus did this, I believe, because his heavenly Father, as we sang the song, Good, Good Father. And God is good. Our Father in heaven is good. And he is hospitable. He is the one that actually began hospitality in giving us life. And for Jesus, Jesus was simply extending what he received from the Father. A family, siblings, a home during his childhood and early adult years, and food. And there's a scene that takes my breath away every time I read it is when the miracle, the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, it's not really 5,000, that's 5,000 men. It was probably about 20,000 with women and children, by the way. But Jesus takes this loaf of bread, he looks to the heavens, and he just thanks God. And the word for that is Eucharisteo. And Eucharisteo is not only a thankfulness, a gratefulness, but also a gratefulness with joy. Simply over a loaf of bread. But it was Jesus looking at God the Father as, thank you for providing for me, for being hospitable to provide this for me. And it's a very moving part. And as Jesus lives out this hospitality, um, then the church picks up with that as well. Your teaching notes, number one, the why. It's an integral, it was an integral part of the early church and Jesus' life. It is an integral part of the early church and Jesus' ministry or life. Next, another reason for the why. And maybe you're like good for the early church and Jesus and all that stuff, but the world has changed. It's the 21st century. I, I don't want interruptions. But maybe that's exactly what you need. Maybe you need interruptions. Another reason, number two, the Bible commands us to. And when the Bible commands us to, we ought to take notice. That's something that's pretty important, I think. Look at Romans 12, 13. Look at that verse right up here. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. I love that closing phrase. Always, always, always be eager to practice hospitality. I want you to circle that word always or write that in your teaching notes. Always. And that, that phrase, practice hospitality, it's not like one and you're done. Like that one time, 
uh, that year. That was good. The idea actually of practice hospitality in the language means continually. It's a continuous action of hospitality, of reaching out to people. And maybe as, as we look at this, we're wondering, okay, great. But Paul puts even a more emphasis on hospitality. It was actually a criterion for leadership in the early church. Titus chapter 1, verse 8. It says right here, Rather, he must enjoy having guests. So this, the he part is a leader, okay? So this is a criterion for leadership of the church. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. Isn't that amazing? That was part of the criterion. And I want to challenge our leadership team and our staff that for us, we need to lead the way. We can't just simply just like preach it out and then hopefully the congregation will pick it up. We have to lead by example. As we talk about practice hospitality for our leadership team and for our staff, um, for us to lead the way and then for this church to do as well. And as I said, the Bible commands, and that you might cringe when you hear that. You don't like that word. Yet we need it in the areas of, my, of our lives, don't we? We need people around us who are going to kind of command us something. And, and maybe that's not a direct command, but it's sort of a strong pushing towards something. For, for example, my trainer at Lifetime Fitness. I need that trainer to, to command me to do that fourth set of 10 reps of the lunge. I need that. I need that trainer yelling in my ear. We need people that, like that around our lives. For example, I preach and teach and speak a lot. I need good, close brothers in Christ around me to make sure I'm speaking the truth. Because one of my blind spots for a lot of speakers is embellishing or twisting something to make it sound really good so that you come across impressive. And I have some brothers that are always checking with me on truth-telling. Like when I go through a story, maybe it's a story about a car accident. Really, Craig? Was it seven cars? I thought it was two. Seriously. True story. Okay. Let's jump into the how. The how. Besides the example of Lydia, we read a story about Paul and his companions. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 28. And we're going to come back to 28 in the closing of of Acts uh, next week as we close out the book. And he's on his way to Rome. And if you remember back uh, when we started in April, I talked about the fact that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, uh, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Rome was called the ends of the earth. So here we see it actually being fulfilled as Paul makes his way to Rome. And he and his companions, you can probably guess Luke and Silas are with him, and they're making their way to Rome, but they have a shipwreck. And they end up actually in Malta, the island of Malta. So once, in chapter 28, verse 1, once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. I want you to write in there, it actually means literally unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. I just love that. And then these, these Maltese people, if that's how you say it, have, they don't know Paul. They don't know these guys. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. The Maltese were the kind of people where their doormat, so to speak, metaphorically, was always welcome. They took these guys in, built a fire, presumably uh, made some meals for them, and this unusual kindness really touched uh, Luke for him to mention that. And numerous times when we read about hospitality in the Bible, 
It happens like this. I'm sure the Maltese were thinking, okay, it's going to be a regular evening, a regular night. You know, we're going to do the things we do, the Maltese kind of things. They have no idea what what that would be, but uh, they had probably a certain way of uh, life. And all of a sudden, there's an interruption. This ship shows up out of nowhere. And I call these divine interruptions. I feel that when we say no on these interruptions, that we're too busy, what have you, we miss out on God's blessings. Like God wants to bless us so much that he brings somebody and we say, no, I'm too busy to invite that person to my home. I'm too busy to maybe have a meal with them. And we miss out on the riches of life. And let's be honest, as Minnesotans, we are not known for hospitality. I'm speaking as a Minnesotan for most of my life. Uh, for, for a lot of people who come from different states, and the reputation is becoming more and more known, it's not Minnesota nice, it's Minnesota ice. And I think some of us know that. And um, that, for example, one of the running jokes was that if you, uh, you know, a Minnesotan will help you with everything except directions to their house. And it's convicting. And I think there's, there's more that we can do. As you compare it to other, other parts, other regions of the country. For example, there's a family in our church that moved from Mississippi to here in Minnesota. And I had to press them on, tell me the difference on hospitality, because I'm preaching on this. What's it, dif- what, what's it like? And they said, you know, when we moved to Mississippi, people came over right away. They didn't ask, like, let us know if you need some. They said, we're here to help. We're here to help you move. We got some food. And they just kind of jumped in. So when they moved from Mississippi to Minnesota, none of the neighbors helped them move in. In fact, one said, let us know if you need some help. Okay? I think we can take steps. And I'm not trying to to insult um, my state that I love so much, but I think there's a lot that we can do, a lot that we can learn from in terms of being hospitable, that as we engage in hospitality, what we do, we experience the refreshing joy in becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than becoming self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality. He provided our house, our furniture, our food. And that sense of God's hospitality will decay and die if it doesn't flourish in our hospitality to others. So how do we do it? Number one, in your teaching notes, by moving from self to others. By moving from self to others. And that's always a good thing. And maybe you're like, Craig, I'm already doing this. I have, you know, my, my group, my neighbors, my family, my friends. But when was the last time you actually invited somebody from this church that you don't know very well? Because we have a lot of people that are not connected. And I need your help. I need your help to invite them. Invite them over to your home for a meal. Invite them over for coffee sometime. Um, and, and, and reach out to them because it makes a big difference. And, and the statistics are that if a newcomer to a church is not connected in some way within the first couple of months, whether by serving or for perhaps getting connected in a relationship, they typically transition and leave that church. So we move from self to others. Another important feature of the early church was that they viewed their homes as an extension of the church. That's number two. They viewed their homes as an extension of the church. So for a lot of us, our definition of church is, okay, 60 to 75 minutes. Um, I, I, I'm here at the church. I kind of uh, endure Craig's sermons. And then I, uh, we head out, grab some uh, culvers on the way, go home, 
and then the next week starts over. Come back into church, 60 or 75 minutes, and then the next time it's Portillo's or something. I don't know. Okay? Back then, in the early church, and and we need to recapture that spirit. They didn't see it that way. They saw their corporate gatherings in the temple courts as important, but also they would meet in homes. They would meet in homes together. They would meet in homes together. And why do I keep punching on meeting in homes? Because you know what? I believe this. And when that experience in the DR happened to me, I, I looked at myself like, I can't believe I've been so selfish. Or I can't believe I haven't been more willing to invite people over for a meal. And like, for example, when I moved from Chaska to Plymouth, and some of you uh, watched on Facebook Live, I, I want to learn how to cook and make some meals for people and start inviting people over to my house. And, and for the first time, at that time I was 47, uh, the first time in 47 years I actually learned to use a, a crock pot. It was a, it was a great step of achievement. But anyways, you know, there's something, I, I learned there's something, when you have somebody come over to your house, there's something that happens. That's different from a restaurant. That's different from Starbucks. And I'm, I'm not saying that those things are, are necessarily bad, but so there's something about inviting people into our homes. As we share with them what God has blessed us, as God has been hospitable to us in providing all these things for us, and then we then and share as a conduit to the people around us. Max Lucado writes this, Something holy happens around a dinner, dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the backs of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions of faces. I love that. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the, time, around the table, there is time for talk. He writes this, Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. When you open the door to someone and you say, welcome, you're sending a message. You're saying, you matter to me and to God. And you may be thinking, you know, simply come over for a visit, welcome. But actually what you're saying too, and I think what your guest hears, I'm worth the effort. They actually took this kind of trouble. I'm worth the effort. To close, former televangelist Jim Baker, um, right after he got out of prison, and actually I was a, junior at the University of Minnesota, and I was a, a pre-law major, developed a friendship, um, actually a mentor at, uh, with a judge in St. Paul, and he actually knew the warden at the prison in Rochester. I had no idea Jim Baker was there, but I remember going there and seeing Jim Baker in the cafeteria all by himself, this frail guy who had a larger, uh, just this incredible life, obviously, that was immoral in a lot of ways, but um, what happened after he re- was re- released from prison is that Franklin Graham uh, reached out to him. He wanted to help him out when he got out. With a job, a house to live in, and a car, Graham said. And during that time, uh, it was uh, Baker's fifth Christmas in prison. He thought it over, and he said to Franklin, you can't do this. It will hurt you. The Grahams don't need my baggage. And he looked at me, and he said, Jim, you were my friend in the past. And I know it's been some time. I know we, we have a lot of ground to to cover again, but I want to invite you into our lives. I want to invite you into our home and rebuild that friendship. And he said, Franklin Graham said, if anyone doesn't like it, I'm looking for a fight. (laughs) Um, So when I got out of prison, uh, writes Baker in his book, the Graham sponsored me and paid for a house for me to live in, gave me a car to drive, 
The first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house I was living at, the Salvation Army, and asked permission for me to go to their church in North Carolina with them that Sunday, Sunday morning. And when they got there, the pastor welcomed me, Baker writes, and I sat with the Graham family. And it was like two rows of Grahams. There was every uncle and aunt and cousin in the entire Graham family, and the organ began playing. The place was full except for the seat next to me. And that was a seat for Ruth Graham, and she walked in. And sat down next to inmate 0740758. I had only been out of prison for 48 hours, but she told the world that morning that Jim Breaker was my friend. Afterwards, she had me up to their cabin for dinner. When she asked me for some addresses, I pulled out the envelope in my pocket to look for them because in prison, you're not allowed to have a wallet. So um, an envelope becomes your wallet. And she asked, Don't you have a wallet? And he's like, Yeah, I have my wallet. It's, it's an envelope. And after five years and being in prison, you just don't remember that. She walked in another room and came back and said, here's one of Billy's wallets. He doesn't need it. You can have it. That's hospitality. Let's pray. Father God, help us as a church to have our radars on, to be looking around for people that we can invite, that we can reach out to. And as we do, God, that we are modeling the way of Jesus and we're modeling the way of the church. And That was the central rhythm of the church back in that day. And help us to recapture that. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. This time we receive this morning's offering. We're going to need your your mic, Sam. We're going to need your mic. So before I give the benediction, um, Lindsay Johnson, uh, her and her uh, husband Tim and their uh, their kids, started attending our church a couple months ago. And then Lindsay came on first as an interim assistant for me after Carrie Law transitioned. And then uh, just recently took the, the job of, uh, yep, of the office manager. So I'm just going to do a little interview with uh, Lindsay. And her, uh, by the way, how many of you guys loved that brunch uh, earlier this month? Okay. That is the handiwork of Tim Johnson and Lindsay's husband. You want to stand up, Tim? Raise your hand. Come on. Yeah. And also, uh, he did the Easter brunch, too, so... Um, just a remarkable uh, cook. So, Linz, welcome. Hi, thanks. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Uh, pink. Okay. Uh, <laughs> t- t- tell, me about your, tell me about your family. So, uh, well, Tim has already been introduced. So, Tim and I are actually high school sweethearts. So, we're both from small town Iowa, uh, six hours south of here. And um, we went K-12 together, but we started dating in high school. And then uh, separate colleges. And then uh, got married after college. Uh, and the week after we were married, uh, we drove cross-country to California to start his uh, journey with General Mills, who he works for. And I was teaching, so we lived in uh, Redondo Beach, California, but uh, L.A. area. And then after that, we went to Tennessee. And after that, we went to northern Ohio, and then southern Ohio, <laughs> and then here. <laughs> so five years, in, or five moves in 15 years. Wow. So that's where we are. And, and then uh, also, not to forget about the uh, other people of our family, I also have four children, and they are one, three, five, and seven. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always crazy at our house. <laughs> Pray for the Johnsons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so growing up in southern Iowa, what was it like in terms of uh, spiritual context? Uh, what was faith like? For sure. You? So um, I was uh, raised in a Presbyterian church. Uh, we went every single Sunday. My mom and dad still go there. It was very small, um, about 70 people 
ish <laughs> on Sunday mornings. Um, and I was related to most of them because a lot of my family still lives there. So um, it was really very much, I think that's kind of where I started with my servant's heart because uh, everything that was happening in the church, meals, uh, playing the piano, singing in the choir, VBS, teaching, whatever it is, somebody in my family was part of it um, because if not you, then who? Because there wasn't anybody else. <laughs> so we just uh, took that on and it just be, the faith uh, became part of our life always. And then uh, when you and Tim and the, and the kids moved here, what, what drew you to Maple Grove Covenant? Sure. So uh, when we moved here, I'm the lucky one who always gets to do all the church shopping, if you will. So we, I would go to several places and figure out if it would uh, seem like a fit for our family or not. And I was reminded of the story, actually, a couple weeks ago. Um, when we came to Maple Grove Covenant, um, you know, I was really intrigued just by the message and the music. And, uh, but what really, like, honed in, like, oh, this must be the place for us is because when they said the children are dismissed, like, half the congregation got up and, like, <laughs> like out the back doors. And so I thought, oh, <laughs> this is going to be great because we have a lot of kids. <laughs> so uh, in regard to uh, the office manager, again, you got four kids, one, three, five, and seven. And we'll get to the details of your job in a second, but what in the world are you thinking? <laughs> well, <laughs> usually most people wonder that. What is she thinking? Um, so actually, uh, it started out um, a couple months ago when I was hired. Um, I actually was hired to do Craig's just kind of um, admin assistant role. And when uh, we talked about it on the phone, I actually turned it down because I said, I think it's just going to be too many hours for what you want. And I have, you know, four kids. So no, thank you. But um, it just kind of kept on my heart and I kept thinking about it. And I told uh, Tim, I said, you know, I just can't, I just can't let this go. I've just been thinking about it. So I'm just going to leave it up to God. Like if Craig would come back and be like, oh, just 10 hours a week and you can work from home. And, and, uh, you know, I just need you through like the end of the school year. Then, um, then it's meant to be, it's a God thing and meant to be. So sure enough, like two weeks later, he calls, Hey, Lynn's, um, so I just need somebody for like 10 hours a week and you can work from home. And I was like, all right, <laughs> that, that's me. I'll do it. <laughs> um, and I think it just comes from my servant's heart. And then, um, I just felt like it was the place I was supposed to be. And then uh, a month or, I don't even know, a month or so ago, he was like, so, Linz, I have a, a proposition for you about becoming the office manager. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, I just prayed about it and thought about it. And I said, sure, you know, we'll just, we'll try it. And luckily he can give me a lot of grace for all my kids. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and, that's where we are. And what does the, the job office manager entail? Besides, uh, <laughs> besides keeping me keeping in the right him direction. together. Yeah, if he's made a meeting with you in the last couple of months, you can thank me because I'm putting it on his calendar for him. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, really, it, it started as really helping out Craig and taking things off of his plate so he can free his mind for what he needs to do up here and for us. Um, and it's turned into um, really facilitating the office and um, being the person that um, understands what the board is wanting and what Craig is wanting and what the staff needs and being able to get those things um, accomplished. Um, and Craig is kind of a yes man and a big idea man, and I'm the person that's kind of trying to put it into reality for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, I think in the future, as my role goes on, um, it will be helping with the bigger ideas and how do we implement those and what are we doing with our congregation and our community and to move forward. Yep. So we're going to close. Uh, so uh, Lindsay and I have this banter because she's from Iowa. God, I love my state of Minnesota. So we have Minnesota-Iowa jokes back and forth all the time. And she actually started the first one. 
So then uh, last week I printed a picture of the state of Iowa and I taped it. And if you're from Iowa, by the way, and you don't know me very well, I apologize in advance. Anyways, I put the, the state of Iowa and then I just wrote some words in there like uh, the average uh, graduation rate, 11.75%. Right. <laughs> and uh, electricity was first instituted in Iowa in 1989. <laughs> And in quotes, is this heaven? No, it's purgatory. <laughs> so with that, with that, I told her, give, give, it, give me your best be Minnesota prepared. joke. And it's, I have my best joke. So I have something for you. It's a dollar. Wow. <laughs> Do you know what that's for? No. Well, my dad's not here today, but he told me you're the poorest preacher he's ever heard. So I thought I'd help mm. you out. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> well done. Welcome. Let's give Lindsay a hand, you guys. <clears throat> Let's stand for the benediction. If you get a chance, say hi to Lindsay out in the uh, lobby area. We're so excited about her, and she is just a remarkable talent, organized, detailed, and is a, a blessing to our staff. So with this Maple Grove Covenant Church, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and your family. And be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Happy Father's Day.